And that is how God created the world. Any questions? What about the rest of the story? What do you mean the rest of the story? That is the story. No, I heard it was. Well, good morning, Menlo Church. So good to see you. Uh, welcome to what uh, I think is a really special message and story in the midst of the series we're doing this summer called The Rest of the Story, uh, where we're trying to grow our faith from the flannel graph version over here that some of us grew up with uh, to something more, something deeper. Now, a special shout out uh, to all of our Bay Area campuses up in San Mateo, Mountain View here in Menlo Park, down in Saratoga, and everywhere online. I hope that you have been encouraged in this series that the foundation of your faith is the person and work of Jesus and His grace alone. That even if your understanding of these stories changes or evolves over time, that's actually okay. Your faith can endure. Now, what we've said uh, throughout this series is that we often learn the stories of the Bible as kids in ways that we are ready to comprehend, that we can actually understand. But if we don't let our faith grow up with us, we will often grow out of it along the way. Today is a very important story in the Hebrew Scriptures focusing on the prophet Jonah. But before I dive into the story, I want to take a moment and pray for us together. And if you've never been here before or never heard me speak, uh, I pray kneeling. And the reason that I do that is to remind myself and to remind us together uh, that it's really about what God wants to do. Beyond my words, it's God's word that we grow in and learn from. So would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you that for what each and every one of us needs today, we can find it in your word. For each and every one of us in this story, I believe there is something for us to take away today. I pray that we would. I pray that there would be moments and experiences throughout where, God, you would bring us back, bring us back to the story, bring us back to your story, and ultimately ours with you, uh, that whatever we're going through and wherever we're headed to, we would see you in the midst of it. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, I'm sure that whether you are a seasoned Christian or this is totally new for you, that the story of Jonah and the whale has crossed your path at some point in your life. The flannel graph version of kind of the story of Jonah was pretty simple. And um, if you didn't hear it as a kid, it really was just about this idea that God told Jonah, who was a professional prophet, like did this for a living, to go to Nineveh. But Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, even though those people look relatively nice to me, um, because of how awful those people were. So instead, he gets on a ship and he heads to Tarshish in the exact opposite direction. And so God brings a storm that eventually the sailors, who weren't followers of God, threw him off the ship at his request after exhausting all other options. A great fish swallowed Jonah, right? There's the fish. He looks very happy. Um, and maybe you heard this verse at the time. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. He lived inside that fish until he finally repented or changed his mind. Then God had the fish deliver Jonah to Nineveh instead. Jonah told the Ninevites about God and they were saved. But here's the thing, that's not the whole story. 
See, when I was young, my dad was a big project guy around the house. And when you fear your dad and you help on projects, it's pretty easy to overcompensate in those moments. I remember helping him in the dining room project one time, and my task was to sand down the paint off of the baseboards, a task that any 10-year-old would have been thrilled by, I'm sure of it. (laughs) The problem was, because I didn't want to get into trouble, and I didn't want to ask more questions, and I didn't want to stop too early, I just kept sanding for a long time. So long, in fact, that by the time I was done, we actually had to replace that section of the baseboard because I had sanded it down so far. And sometimes I think that's what we do with biblical stories. We sand them down that far. See, the story of Jonah, it has some rough edges, some uncomfortable things about it, that if we will look at them, they point to some things about God and the implications for us that we often avoid, that we overlook, that we would love to sand down. Like the fact that God loves all the people who don't deserve it, including you. And that's one of those ideas that we like how it affects us personally, but there are some people we would like to exclude from that formula. But before we jump into some of the areas that we avoid, we have to start with the question that we have started with all the stories this summer, which is, is it true? I've been telling you about this idea each week, this thing called hermeneutics, that the way we study the Bible is called hermeneutics. And the way we bring that idea to each part of the Bible, it bleeds into the way we study the rest of the Bible. And that definitely happens with Jonah as well. Here are just kind of a couple major views of how people study Jonah. The first is that it is a literal event that is written poetically. This view is probably most common with people whose understanding of the Bible or their hermeneutic, it trends to the literal interpretation overall. If God created the world in seven days, caused a global flood, and created innumerable languages, then a fish story isn't much of a stretch, right? Now, it certainly is written poetically, but there are plenty of places in the Bible where something is written poetically, but it refers to literal events. The book of Psalms in the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, really is built upon that premise. The second view is that this is a satirical poem, not necessarily literal. This view, it focuses on the poetic nature of the story, and it uses extreme circumstances mixed with humor and irony to communicate ideas that a more conventional narrative, a normal story would struggle to articulate. It's important to note that until recently in history, Jonah didn't seem very possible at all. Nineveh wasn't discovered until the 19th century, and it seemed completely impossible for someone to live inside of a fish, especially if you didn't think that supernatural events were possible. But the problem in history, right, is that we continue to make discoveries. And so as discoveries have been made around actual people surviving in the bellies of whales and the fact that Nineveh really was a city at the time that has been discovered, this literal poetic view has become more and more plausible. I've given you a resource each week to help you dive deeper into the story and go further with it. And I cannot recommend this week's even I cannot recommend this week's more highly. It is incredible. The late, great Tim Keller wrote a book called uh, The Prodigal Prophet that just came out a few years ago, um, and I would really recommend you check it out. There's some quotes that we'll get into later, but uh, you should start reading it immediately. Just stop even listening to me. Get it on your phone. Just start reading it right now. It's really helpful. It's really challenging. 
Now, just like every other story that we've looked at, we should pursue our own understanding of the story's nature, of its genre, of how we think about it, of our view of it. But no matter which major view or idea you bring to this story, the power of this story, like the other stories, is what we do with it how we actually apply it to our lives, the way that we let God look at us through his word. So let's dig in. Beyond the flannel graph version, beyond the version that we grew up with maybe as kids, what is the rest of the story? See, after hearing God tell Jonah to go preach in Nineveh, he ran. Specifically, he believed that he could run from the presence of an all-present God. Seem like maybe there's a problem there. He thought that he would have power beyond an all-powerful God. And so he gets on this ship and the wind is so strong that professional sailors who knew this route were scared for their lives. As they were throwing off shipments that were their livelihood just to preserve their lives, Jonah was simultaneously sleeping. When they went to wake him, they finally realized that he is a Hebrew, that, that his God was different. And Jonah knew that he was in trouble and he knew he that they were in trouble. So this mix of bravery and cowardice and selfishness, he tells them to sacrifice him so that he would survive. And eventually after exhausting other options, the crew complies. And Jonah finds himself swallowed in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights. And somewhere in that 72 hours, he prays a prayer that gives us hope that he is figuring it out. The fish pukes him up onto shore, which I'm sure was a very memorable experience, <laughs> likely leaving him with bleached skin and smelling horribly, right? Like you've been inside of kind of a sketchy uh, seafood restaurant. Imagine being the inside of a sketchy seafood restaurant. Jonah's message to Nineveh was simple. And I'm sure not wildly impassioned at this point. Like this is begrudging submission if I've ever seen it. He says, in 40 days, God is going to take you out. The one true God, the God of Israel. And his overall physical appearance probably left an impression for them too, especially since they had a God in their pantheon of gods as a culture who was half fish, half man named Dagon. And so they were like, this is not Halloween. It looks like you're dressed up. I think this is really you. Nineveh, all of Nineveh, grieved their sin and begged God for mercy from the king and nobles all the way to the commoners and the cattle. The book reads this way. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's kind of where the flannel graph version ends, isn't it? That's just like, we did it. Happy ending. But... Jonah's response to this, a guy who has been trying to tell people about God his entire professional life, this is his response. He says, oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
So maybe a little melodramatic. But Jonah, he hated Nineveh so much that God's mercy on them made him want to die. See, God, he grows a plant to shade Jonah in the moment as he's waiting to watch their destruction, hoping that God would change his mind again. Likely it was a castor bean plant that grows very quickly, but also died quickly. And the story ends in a back and forth conversation between Jonah and God, where Jonah is showing more compassion on the plant than the people. That's the actual story. We talked a lot about identity last week, and in reflecting on this story and our own Jonah-sized blind spots, Tim Keller, in that book I referenced, he points it out this way. He says, when Christian believers care more for their own interests and security than the good and salvation of other races and ethnicities, they are sinning like Jonah. If they value the economic and military flourishing of their country over the good of the human race and the furtherance of God's work in the world, they are sinning like Jonah. Their identity is more rooted in their race and nationality than in being saved sinners and children of God. Now, some of us, we can already feel the internal conflict with a quote like this, right? Because it's pointing out the rough edges that we avoid looking at. All these competing identities, they can blur out God's love for the enemies that they all assume. Now, before we look at another question, I want to name something that I think can get in our way of this self-examination. It's a line I hear more and more in our moment, and the line is this, I don't feel safe. Now, if this is referring to physical safety or active threats, I will be the first to advocate for safety. My concern is that we have widened the term, and safety has now become synonymous with comfort. Therefore, when something challenges my assumptions or makes me uncomfortable, I have a quick out to avoid the implications of the possible change. This form of safetyism is a great way to avoid conflict, but it will shrink your character. And so I would just encourage you to identify the difference. What will you do with this? Who are the enemies you assume and would be angry if God showed mercy to where is your desire for comfort holding you back from your calling that has necessary adjustments and work and rough edges that God wants to do some work on? Maybe for you, this is your political opponent, someone you can't believe voted that way, believes that way, thinks that way. Or maybe it's that person that you could never talk to again because of what they did to you or someone you care about. Or maybe it's the person from a country that you think shouldn't ever enter this one. Or maybe it's the person who holds to a different faith than you. You don't know God because you were good enough. You know God because he extended his love to you. You didn't deserve it either. See, to answer each one of these questions for each of us, there's one more question for all of us. And that is, who are we in the story? Who are we in the story? See, there's a a few options for us over the course of the story. Let's assume that no one is going to say, you know what, in the story, Phil, I figured it out, I'm God. Let's just assume nobody's doing that. But there are still the Jewish people, the professional sailors, the Ninevites, and Jonah himself. The other one that I think we are quick to assume that is not relevant to us is the Ninevites. We think, well, that, I'm, not, I'm not them. But I'm not sure about that. See, in, in Jonah's day, he had to travel to find this group of people who were characterized as lawless and without any reverence for God. And I'm not sure that 
experience today requires a business trip. With that in mind, I think our relationship to Nineveh, a society that wants nothing to do with God, is is likely closer than we think it is. See, some of us, we live what I would call a compatible life to Nineveh. We seek comfort above everything. And when culture conflicts with your calling from God, we will always choose culture. We'll do whatever is necessary to do that. We are willing to follow Jesus until there is resistance with our comfort and then we stop. Some of us, though, I think we live a complicit life to the culture around us, where we don't even wait for a conflict. We will change everything from our career, our calling, our convictions, even our core theology, because of the pressures that we feel to fit in to a culture. For some of us, it's about having a respectable faith to a culture that will never respect it. See, the one that followers of Jesus are called to have as a posture of culture is counter cultural. A countercultural faith, it, it isn't weird to be weird, but it offers the convictions and the compassion of Jesus at the same time every day. And in every place we live, there is no time clock for Christians where we punch in and punch out, where our convictions and our calling and our core theology takes a break. We bring that with us everywhere because we believe that God's doing something in us all the time. That book I recommended earlier can be a great starting place for discovering which one of these approaches to culture you have. As a matter of fact, Tim Keller points it out this way. He says, uh, shallow Christian identities explain why professing Christians can be racists and greedy materialists, addicted to beauty and pleasure, or filled with anxiety and prone to overwork. Not that that's true of anybody in our community, certainly. All this comes because it is not Christ's love but the world's power, approval, comfort, and control that are the real roots of our self-identity. The reason that all Christians have a version of Jonah inside of us is because we are all at war with our selfish and sinful desires to fit into a culture that doesn't fit our calling. It's everywhere. It's all the time. You are constantly being formed into something that is deforming you. Jesus tells a story about a father with two sons. The older son is a loyal and hard worker who stays at his father's side. The younger brother is rebellious and disobedient. And as a young man, he asks for his inheritance from his father early, which basically means, dad, I wish you were dead. And then he proceeds to take that inheritance and squander it on a life that dissipated quickly. When he finally comes back home at the end of himself, his father is waiting with open arms. As a matter of fact, his father has been waiting for this specific day, every day, and he runs and meets his son on the path. The older brother is furious. Furious because the younger brother doesn't deserve this mercy, doesn't deserve this love, doesn't deserve this acceptance. The older brother had done the work He earned it, or so he thought. He deserved it. This is the heart of Jonah. We call this parable the prodigal son, but it would probably be better titled the prodigal sons. I'm the youngest in our family, but uh, sometimes I have had to function as the oldest in my family of origin. When I was eight and my my, uh, next oldest brother Uh, James was 16. He ran away from home for 15 years. Part part of it was to escape the abuse of our father. Um, It was complicated, but we thought he had died. 
But after his sentence was vacated on a technicality for a lifetime sentence on international drug trafficking, he re-entered our life. And no, I'm not making that up. That's actually what happened. And we, uh, over the course of the last 15 years, while he's been back in my life, have had times where uh, we got a chance to navigate life and relationship. But over the course of those same 15 years, there have been times where I felt like I was the older brother in Jesus' parable. Frustrated at my brother's choices, annoyed that he often seemed to avoid the consequences. But as my mom's health had worsened in the last few years before her passing just a few months ago, my brother and I became much, much closer. After my mom's passing, I had hoped that we would stay close and that many of the addictions and patterns of his past could change. Unfortunately and tragically, my brother passed away just a couple weeks ago. And I still feel the spirit of Jonah inside of me. The older brother left to deal with another mess. There are times when God has to show me and slow me down to see the bitterness creeping in. Tired of cleaning up after other people. Taking care of the messes that others have left behind. Fixing the problems that others created. But if in these moments... I forget that I am just as guilty and just as much in need of God's grace than I become Jonah. And so do you. People have asked me how I'm doing. And to be honest, I don't totally know. I'll take some time over the next couple of weeks with my family and friends to reflect, to rest, to grieve. But life it keeps going, and so will I. With God's help, with your help, and communities of people that love us and support us. But something that stood out to me with my brother is true for lots of us. See, my brother was often worried about being spared from the suffering in front of him, from the consequences that often he deserved. And why not? We all would. It's what Nineveh was worried about. But being saved from his sin, it was never really a focus for him, even when we had direct conversations about it, and we had lots of them. I think we can all default to this way of thinking, can't we? Particularly when we have done things that normally bring suffering. We pray to be spared from the suffering. Even if you're a Christian, we think to ourselves, God, I'm going to make a deal with you. And being saved from our sin, it can become irrelevant in that moment. We can forget what's really at stake. That's even what happened with Nineveh. See, we, we get to the end of the story, and if Jonah is the only prophet we know, we would just assume that Nineveh is somewhere doing amazing today. Sure, they were spared suffering in the moment, given mercy by God, but another prophet, Nahum, later depicts their destruction. Because when all we want is circumstantial blessing, when all we want is to be spared suffering, that's all we can get. That's the ceiling. When eternal salvation is what's understood, when really dealing with our sin by God's grace, through faith, period, not as a result of our works, even when we aren't spared suffering, even when circumstances aren't good, it's okay because we have a bigger plan. We have a bigger picture and it's for eternity. So whoever you assume doesn't deserve God's love or your love, you're right. 
but probably for the wrong reasons. That political opponent, they do not deserve God's love, but not for the reasons you think. That problem person at your school or at work or in your neighborhood, they aren't worthy of God's love, but not for the reason you think. The bias that you have for a culture or group of people that they don't deserve God's love, you're right, but for a different reason than you think. The problem is that none of us deserve God's love by our own actions, attitude, and character. That's why it's grace. It's actually an outpouring of God because we are image bearers, created in his image with infinite dignity, value, and worth that even if we sin, even if we make mistakes, even if we're broken, he still loves us, not because we deserve it, but because he is so good. And when we remove grace and God's character from the equation, then no one would experience his love. No one deserves it. Remember, God loves all the people who don't deserve it. And that includes you including my brother. And even though I don't know where he is spending eternity, I know that God loved him and that he had a plan for eternity with God offered to my brother if my brother would simply choose to surrender his life to Jesus, just like would be the case for any of us. See, the reason is because Jesus is the better Jonah. What Jonah shared partially, Jesus ultimately shared completely. Jesus doesn't leave us guessing after the religious leaders ask him for a sign during his earthly ministry. He responded this way, generations after Jonah, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus didn't come primarily to spare us from suffering. He came to save us from our sin. He came and lived a perfect life fueled by love and compassion for people who don't deserve it, including you and me. And then he died a death that we all deserved, and when he rose from the grave, it was an offer, an invitation to all of humanity to have relationship that could begin now and last forever. Not an offer for us to continue on as modern day Ninevites or judgmental Jonas, but to live among them, saved by grace through faith so that the love of God could shine through our lives to a world lunging for whatever low hanging options for temporary numbing are instantly available. And but for the grace of God, we would be doing the same thing. I know that many of you have people in your life like my brother, tragedies you long to see God intervene in, but you also have people you don't lose sleep over, people you have stopped praying for. You don't hate them, but like if there was a button you could push and they would just go away, you might push it. That's Jonah. Because all of those people, God loves them. Jesus died to provide a path back for just those kinds of people. So I'm gonna finish our time by asking God to reveal the Jonah inside each one of us and reawaken a heart of love that God has for them and for us. 
not because we deserved it or because we've earned it, but because we have a God that is that good, that loving, and that gracious. Would you do me a favor and bow your heads with me? With your head bowed, just as I take a moment to pray in just a second, if as I talked about Jonah and I talked about how he had just decided that there were some people in his life that were unworthy of God's love and acceptance, if, if God's brought a name to you where that's true for you or a type of people in your life where that's true to you, you know there's just some Jonah percolating in you and I can pray specifically for you or maybe somebody at our campus where you are can pray specifically for you. If that's you, if you know there's somebody or a group of people that you just have not been extending the love of God to, would you just slip your hand up for me that I might pray for you right now? Say, God, there's some people in my life. There's some groups of people. There's an individual that I just know I am not extending your love to. Thank you. Thanks for letting me pray for you. Let's pray together. God, we carry partiality, bias, hate. We carry these things in our heart and in our lives, whether we want to admit it or not. And so right now, God, I pray that you would break our heart for what breaks yours. That God, you see us with perfect vision. You understand what is at the surface. You understand what's underneath the surface. You understand the people that we love because we think that they deserve it. And we understand, God, the people that we hate. And we have all kinds of rationalizations, but you see that too. God, would you open our heart back up to see people as you do, people created in your image that no matter what category we might be tempted to discount or delete them in our own mind, you never will. And so right now, God, even in this moment, bring us to the belly of that whale. Help us to think about the smell and the silence and the fear that might exist there that you could bring us to even in this moment to be reminded that, God, you love us even though we don't deserve it. There's nothing we could do that would be enough. And, God, those people in those categories, you love them too. Remind us of that today. Shape our minds and our hearts that our love might extend to them just as yours always has. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.